It's not just time to get away. It's time to travel with Anita. From around the world to across Georgia, she covers it all. Now, here's the host of Travel with Anita, Anita Thomas. Hello, 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 and welcome aboard Travel with Anita and Friends. I'm one of those travelers who loves to find the ways to connect with the local culture, and I can do that best by food. Now, you all hear me talking about the local cuisine and some of the places that I've eaten when I go to these different destinations. But today I want to talk about the history of food and how some of those foods have become the local delights in places and those traditional dishes. How did that happen? Especially when those particular food items may not have originated in those destinations. Now, the best person that I know to bring on to talk about that is Doc Bill, because he knows the food maps and a lot about food history and preparation of foods so well. So, you know, it's been a while since he's been back here in the studio with us. So, Doc Bill, welcome back. It's great to be back. Well, it's definitely great to have you here, especially when we talk about food. I mean, you are a great cook. I mean, you make some of the most delicious meals. But what I always admire about you and food is just your knowledge of the history of foods and just where they, the food maps, where they originated. Well, thank you. I mean, uh, people hear the term food maps and say, well, what is a food map? Yeah, what is that? I'm going to, a food map is really a four dimensional system of nutrients of life. And to break that down, when we think of a map, we think of a piece of paper that has a location, how to get from point A to B. But you need more than just the location. You also need a, f- a fourth component. You need time, when to eat. And a food map does that. And not only tells you where the food is located or where the food came from, a point B, but it also tells you when the food is ready. And to get the best understanding of a food map, to me, the animal that best symbolizes this is a bear. Okay. Uh, and uh, whether you're talking, um, when you look at uh, bears or you look at other animals like in Africa, uh, the, the large maternal um, elephant, these animals have over generations have this knowledge of where the food is. The mother bear knows where the berries are. She knows when the salmon's at. She knows where the honey hole's at. But the most key thing about this, she knows when is the best time to get it. You can go to the stream, but if the salmon aren't running, you're going to starve. <laughs> That's you true. can go to the honey hole, but if the honey's not running within the um, hive, you'll have no honey. And food maps have this out. The female bear knows where the honey holes are. She also knows where uh, Joe dumped his garbage at, usually this time of year. That's true. And too. so all these things, um, reading the food map that's heavily old and late, overlaid with other sources and her experience that she's also observed from her mother. And um, from this, you get a survival manual on how an, anim- a- how an animal survives. Likewise, in the human world, we have food that's come from all parts of the world. We came, we started in one location, but the food spread. And these food maps start out regional and then they become more international. And um, the best source, and to me, the most beautiful form of food maps, and one of the oldest that I know of, is in the Historical Atlas of World Mythologies by Joseph Campbell. And it starts off in Africa, goes to the New World. It has the Middle East and Asia as well. And so those are a good idea or understanding of food maps, what they are and what they represent. 
and you'll find that food moves from one location to another. And it also parallels religion. It brings with the culture. And the most important thing that food masks bring, they bring with it with those people and the ability to survive in areas or places that can be tough to survive in. And I would think also too, as, as people move around, they wanna bring what they know, what they're accustomed to eating as well. It does. People basically have something that works in one area and they try to extend that to the new areas where they migrate to. Now, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Or sometimes they encounter other human beings that have been there before they have and try to adopt their foods into their system. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Because we as human beings, to a large extent, are a product of our genes. And if you grew up in a certain location, your genes modify themselves to that food over a course of 10 to 20,000 years. You got used to eating that type of food. You move to another part of the world and they may have a totally different crop that they eat or a certain type of animal they eat and you may not have eaten it or have a genetic um, background to have eaten it. And then you get allergies and you can't eat that food or you find that food very difficult to eat unless it's modified or other aspects of it. And again, that's also works into the food map. Is that why you find some people may be uh, intolerant to certain foods? It is, particularly when you look at the combination of packages. When I say packages, uh, food can be broken down into an animal package and a plant package. And in the um, plant package, you have some type of grain. It can be wheat, it can be rice. And um, these grains, uh, people have eaten over time. And these are combined with a pulse. A pulse is something like a bean or, or, or a nut. And these give you protein. They give you all the protein you need. But to another part of the world, they may have a different pa- a different protein pack, I mean, a different animal mm-hmm. package. Mm-hmm. And you may not be able to eat rice. You may not be able to eat corn. And so you have to look at other alternatives in these systems. Well, tell me this, though. how As foods move, how do they become then more of a national food that we think because we eat it so much there that it originated there. Foods move usually because of expansion. One of it is trade, and it can also be conquest. And when people um, are in one part, they have a system that work well with them. They bring that system with them. Um, and when they bring that system with them, they bring the foods that work with them that they like. A good example could be in the Middle East. You know, there were certain type of bean crops. Uh, wheat was a very good crop that people would grow. And they took wheat with them. And wheat left the new world and um, the old world and went to the new world. But in the new world, there was a new there was a new grain there was a new grain there, and it was corn, which grew better than wheat did. In a lot of parts corn corn uses less water, and also um, grows in more different temperature ranges than wheat. It stores not as good as wheat, but it stores fairly well and is very abundant. It doesn't have and has certain nutrient advantages and certain nutrient disadvantages. When you move with that corn in the new world, there's a whole system of culture religions that went with the corn. And like wheat has a whole series of religion and cultural systems associated with it because the grain, unlike meat products, can, produ- can be produced in more abundance and therefore they feed the societies. You don't get large societies from what we would call meat or animal-based products. That we would call them hunter-gatherers. You can't get civilization numbers that we think about, large thousands of people. You get a lot smaller groups of people because there's just not that much game out there and the game that is out there is hard to catch. So that's what you get when you have more larger numbers of people and they bring these, these, particularly the grain products with them. 
But also, as as foods move, are preparations of that particular food item, are they different? They're quite different. If you grew up growing wheat, you knew how to make bread with it. You knew how to do take the wheat and heat it up in fire and crack it and make... Uh, crack wheat products you make porridge with it when the wheat when the um, product is boiled in pots and metal metalware all that comes with that um, with that product and so the process you make it is different and the, and the nutrition yield from the products are also going to be different well yeah it's because i've heard people say you know everyone eats rice but rice can be prepared differently especially the particular dishes that have become traditional in certain places rice is probably the most largely eaten grain in the world but rice the rice man the areas where you can grow rice are quite limited and so that's why you find other crops from other parts of the world coming in even in those cultures because rice needs a lot of heat a lot of hot weather and it needs a lot of water well you know i want to go back to corn because also corn is used to feed the animals it does and in most uh uh, Western societies, Middle Eastern societies, that's where we, we say the word Middle Eastern. I'm referring to uh, the area of the Middle East, Syria, um, Lebanon, areas of Israel. These were places where people had, they formed a system where they would um, grow grass, grasses such as wheat, rye, and barley, and then these some of these were fed to the animals. The animals would also eat some of these grasses in the area there, and they got big. And then the byproducts of the animals, whether it's um, milk or uh, cheese made from that milk, or the animal's flesh itself was eaten, and then you had a system that could feed large amounts of people. We need to stop and take a break, but when we come back, Dr. Beale, I want to talk with you a little bit more about specifically some of the areas that have really influenced American cuisine. So we'll stop, take a break here, and we'll be back in a minute here on Travel with Anita and Friends. Put on the skillet, put on the lid. Beans and cornbread had a fight. Beans, Beans knocked cornbread out of sight. Beans. Cornbread said, now that's all right. Beans. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. We enjoy eating the local cuisine, but how does that cuisine become local? How does it become traditional? I have the answers here on Travel with Anita and Friends. Welcome back. And I have Doc Bill sitting here with me today. Now, Doc Bill is my authority that I go to when I want to know more about food history, where foods come from, and also some recipes too. So Doc Bill, thanks for staying with me here on the show today. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, one of the things, too, that we think about with foods are particular national foods or traditional foods, or sometimes we call them ethnic foods. And African food ways is one of the ones that's pretty interesting because soul food, especially here in the South, has become one of the endeared cuisines. So let's talk a little bit about what some of those African food ways are and how they've made their way over to the U.S., Africa, when we think about it, it's a very, very large continent. And a lot of times we think of a lot of people think of Africa as a monolith. It's not. The African continent has two large areas. You have the sub-Saharan Africa, which is mostly going to be tropical, and then you've got the Saharan area. Also, the different races that are within the continent are, are, are quite different. In the northern part of Africa, you mostly have the Caucasians, and that's the area which you have regions of um, Morocco, regions of... Egypt, uh, Tanzania, these areas here are areas in which you have areas which are strongly influenced that from the Middle East and Near East. The Sub-Saharan area is a different area, and there you have groups and people, what we refer to as the Negroes, or you have um, people such as the tribes of the Hottentots, you have uh, the Zulu, and these groups of people um, live in a more hotter climate. And because of the change of the, the climate itself, the food is different because the plants down there are different, vastly different. You have a rice culture 
in um, sub-Saharan Africa, and that's mostly on the west coast. You also have you also have millet, and you also have sorghum. And these are different from wheat, which you have in the northern part of Africa. And when you look at um, history of food from this region that goes to other parts, two people come to mind. One person is Jessica Harris, who wrote a lot on African food ways and its influences in the um, in the New World. And then you also have a woman named Judith Carney, who also writes um, about the influences of food coming from Africa to the New World. In Africa, the grain package is sorghum, millet, and rice. And with these are stories, and with these are ways of preparing these different crops. Uh, the vegetables are also different. You have root vegetables, uh, yams. And the yam is not what we think of as a sweet potato found here in the New World. Yam are uh, literally root vegetables that grow deep within the earth. And these are used in addition to um, the meats and stuff they find. Africa and African cuisine is focused on these vegetables and those grains. And with the Bushmen being the first people on the planet, what we call Martin humans. And they were hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gatherers are people who hunt, and they mostly hunt, they hunt animals, and they gather roots. Roots are your most nutritious form of plant matter, the high in starch. And with these, two to, with these two together, you can survive. But your numbers are going to be small because there's only so much of those resources out there. But when you get to the uh, Negroes, they had a more advanced form. They had a, a form of a root that, was, that grew easier, easier to harvest. They had better tools and their numbers were able to grow and they harvested those crops I mentioned before, the millet, the sorghum, and the rice. You find rice cultures in Africa and you find rice cultures in the Middle, in the, um, Middle East. But the rice culture here in America was strongly influenced by the rice culture out of Africa. When the people came and they brought the crops with them. The crops were not only brought by the people, they were also brought by the slave um, traders who fed the people the crops they had in their area because they knew that's what people were eating. But they also brought up, brought them over because they had the skills to grow those items as well. They were brought over because they had skills of farming, and uh, they also knew how to how to how to grow it. The Europeans knew how to take a product, maximize it in large amounts, and market it. And um, what you have, people eat what they have. And if they don't, I've never seen a crop or something like corn. Corn was not in Africa. They will try to prepare it and cook it the way they um, cook what they had in Africa. Mm -hmm. And then there was also sharing of ideas. The The Native Americans interacted with the black Americans, even during the time of slavery. The people assumed these people were separate. That didn't happen. The Native Americans also interacted with the whites that were here as well. The Caucasian society was here as well. And all those foods on, when you see a new crop, the first thing you ask is, if you've never seen corn, if I eat it, how do I cook it? Mm. And when they ask that, that knowledge is passed over right then and there on how to prepare that crop. Well, I, I want to ask you a little bit, though, about some of the foods that we consider to be soul foods um, that um, people would say come out of, uh, you know, come come from Africa. Now, what about collard greens? Because collard greens, uh, when I was traveling with Pan Am, one of the first things that I wanted to find was collard greens. And I found some greens, but they were actually potato greens, not collard greens. Uh, collard greens are to black Americans as tomatoes are to Italians. Neither of those plants are native to those areas. Collard greens come from Europe. And the mm -hmm. style of cooking them come from Europe. A lot of people say, no, they actually, the style of cooking it comes from Europe. Um, but the boiling them, the boiling with, some of them of with some type of meat. Mm -hmm. um, whereas um, uh, Africans will tend to more so saute or cook them. And that's used as a dressing on type of uh, starch, whether that starch is pounded uh, 
uh, plantain or pounded uh, sorghum or pounded even corn. Uh, collard greens come from Europe. And the reason you know that is collard greens, particularly in the south and in the um, north, it grows in snow. Matter of fact, that cold frost makes the collard greens taste better. It mobilizes the sugar in the plant. Um, so, you know, that's a little bit of the history of it. But people can take any crop from any part of the world and you make it your own. You put your spin on it or you um, fall in love with it. But now you mentioned Dr. Uh, Jessica B. Harris, and she is a culinary historian. And I had a chance to talk with her, and I'd like to share a little bit of what she said about what food maps are and why they are so important, in particular in talking about foods coming from Africa and becoming part of what we call American food. Because it tells the story of all sorts of things, of migrations. I mean, we're here in rice territory. Mm -hmm. um, the way the story here was told before we started looking at the way the story was, mm. was very different. Very, very different. But now we know the story is about African labor. We know that the story is about African ingenuity. We know that the story is about African agricultural know-how. We know all of those things because we've made connections with the food stuff itself. That rice that built this empire, if you will, yeah, and how it how it happened. But that all is a story that's told through food, that's told because of food. So all of that is important. Um, you can take the same story with corn. You can take the same story with wheat. You can take the same story with peas. You can take the same story with okra. You can, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. anything you put in your mouth has a story as to how it got on that plate, so you could put it in your mouth. But now, Dr. Bill, I want to ask you about this, too, because I had a chance to talk with uh, Dr. Sarah Ross, who works over at Wormslow with the University of Georgia with a lot of heritage foods. And one of the things that she said that I found very interesting, too, is that with the preparation of foods, foods that were maybe uh, traditional or local in some places were prepared differently because of the tools that they had to prepare those foods in. And one thing would be frying of foods. But here in the U.S., then things like fried chicken, things like that maybe became more popular because there were things that you could actually fry things in. Yeah, metal, metal things. Metals weren't used um, to the extent in Africa. I mean, a lot of the metals came from the Middle East and then got imported down in Africa. The whole idea of, of, of um, smithing or taking ores, pounding them out and making metals. The chicken's from China. And um, they were eating fried chicken there because they did have um, metal tools there for a long, long time. And um, but that doesn't mean fried chicken wasn't newly discovered here. You know, people fried what they had. And when you have a metal tool, you fry whatever bird you have. You fry whatever you have. But frying is just one way. But frying uses oil, and and oil is expensive. So when people would would um, do things, they would you know use oil they had. Predominant oil in this country a lot of times came from you know came from lard. Mm -hmm. People did a lot of work with lard and. Um, that was used when they would render pigs. But now uh, we're coming down to the end of this segment, but when we move into the next segment, I'd love for you to stay with me, Doc Bill, because I want to talk specifically about how food, religion, food and celebrations, um, all of those things, how do they go together? You know, travel with Anita and friends. So you guys stay put, we'll be back in a few minutes. You know, travel with Anita and friends.
It's the holidays, and what do we do first? We think about what foods we're going to prepare, and many foods go with certain holidays. Um, you think about the 4th of July, you got to have a hot dog, you got to have a hamburger, but where does all of that come from? We're here on Travel with Anita and Friends. We're going to talk about some of my favorite things here, and that is combining food with celebrations. That is certainly something that is not only just here in the United States. I mean, that is just a human thing. When it's time to celebrate, we want to bring out the food. We do, we do, and food and celebration, food and culture are are, are tied immensely. They, they it grows out of each other. The one of the most well documented sources in my experience of food and and mythologies or food and religion is is, is Joseph Campbell in his book, The Historical Atlas of World Religions. And I'm saying that because uh, food and its culture are uniquely tied. Uh, you can basically look at food and think of it in in two terms of uh, terms of hunter-gatherer societies and societies which are agricultural societies. Another way of summarizing it is the god or the goddess. Uh, nature is not gender neutral. Most hunter-gatherer societies, pretty much all that we know to date, are, are, are male-oriented societies. And these were people that would gather or kill the animals around them, and there were ceremonies associated with that, and they also gathered roots. Most of the gathering of the roots and stuff was done by the women, and the hunting was done by the men. And at the conclusion of each, there was some type of ceremony, some atonement where people were acknowledged. I got this from something better, greater than myself, and I must give something back to nature. On the other side, in the agricultural societies, it's all the goddess, the female powers. In the New World Society, it's corn, bean, and squash. And again, it's basically a primary grain, and it's a story or a myth associated with that. But in both of, of, of religion and culture, as, as human beings, we put ourselves in harmony with nature. We don't modify nature. Even today, we think we can change. You don't modify nature. Nature has a way of doing things, and it's way bigger and greater than we are. When you put yourself in phase with nature, and all ceremonies, all religions, from Thanksgiving, all these holidays we look at, which are remnants of these old ancient past passageways, they teach you to put yourself in harmony with nature, and nature yields its bounty. The, the ceremony associated with the salmon runs are associated with going to catch the salmon. When the salmon are running, nature gets its bounty. The corn harvest says harvest at this time of the year because that's when the plant will yield you its most. So you yield or you bend to nature and nature gives you its bounty. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the, you know, food and religion, though, in particular, um, sort of how those two particular foods became connected with a religious ceremony. Most of them are the principal grain, that, if you're on the agricultural side, that provides people their nourishment. Uh, there's the green corn ceremony in Native Americans. There's rice ceremonies in China and in Japan. The last meal, the last thing you get served in these societies, in, in any meal, is rice. It's what keeps society going. It's what's present in large amounts of on large amounts. Again, I said before. It's the protein that you get from animal matter. We talk about plant-based societies um, or plant-based nutrition, but it's that um, grain plus a pulse that gives you all the protein you need in those societies. And protein is the most valuable source in um, human nutrition. And if you want to learn about it, a lot about human nutrition, what to eat or what not eat, but many diets, the best source, um, you can go to nutritionists, but I, I say, the people who I find know the most about nutrition 
are hunters and farmers because they have to prepare the food and they learn what goes into the food is what you get out of the food. Mm. And unless you're a nutritionist to spend some time on a farm to see what happens or some time out in the field hunting, sometimes that connection is lost. Well, let's talk a little bit also too about, uh, we talked uh, mentioned the Middle East. Uh, what are some food items that have come out of the Middle East that are now in other places and we feel as though, well, that's a traditional food that we, we eat there, but actually it originated in the Middle East. Oh, their beans and their wheat. For instance, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the grain dishes we think about, the rice dishes come from there. Uh, everyone thinks about falafel. Well, the chickpea came from that parts of the Middle East and some parts maybe from Northern Africa as well. But uh, falafel is a thing where you just basically take a, a pea, you grind it up, and um, it's eaten with some type of flatbread. Again, the bread gives you part of the protein. The chickpea gives you the other part, and you have a complete meal. But falafels found all around the world. Mm -hmm. um, most of the most of the domestic animals we eat, uh, the sheep, the goat, the cow, they all, and the pig, they all come from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. That's where the highest um, nice. I'm using this term as far as the oldest records show where you had high-ordered civilizations from the Middle East. That's where um, most of the evidence comes from. And from there, it panned out around the world. I knew the goat, but I wasn't aware that the, the pig also. A lot of the pigs, um, particularly the current pig we think about, comes from the Middle East area and parts of North Africa. The pig that people are eating in West Africa came from, um, came from the Middle East. And we eat pork all around the world. And the pig is an animal that grows very quickly. It can pretty much eat everything. And it's like us human beings. If you look at a human being, we argue about whether it should be plant-based or non-plant-based. Look in your mouth. You've got teeth, the incisors, which are ripping and tearing. You've got molars for grinding. Machinery in our mouths that allowed us to eat both. And we needed to eat both because there really is not that much out there to eat. So it gives you that diversity with it. But if our numbers are really, really large, you have to be plant-based because there's not that many animals out there. When your numbers are really small, you can become more um, animal-based. What we call the paleo diet is the hunter-gatherer diet. What we call the, the vegan diet is the um, agricultural diet. Is, is agricultural diet. And all these forms have with them myths. And they've been there for a long time. They live in us. And um, if we try to ignore them, you know, they show they rear their heads again. Or we do things which we think is new, but our ancestors who were on these diets before, um, you know, did you know, it's, been around, it's been around a long time. It's in our genes as part of us. Well, you know, there's something that uh, I found really fascinating, too, is how you can have one person or you can have uh, certain situations that really heavily influence how things become culturally attached to to a place. And I'm thinking about Ireland and St. Patrick. Uh, I had on my show a couple of years ago, Dr. Campbell, who talked about the influence of St. Patrick on the food and how as he traveled around Ireland, people started to eat the particular foods that he ate. So I want to play a little clip from that. The, the Irish tended to keep medicines aside. So it was a huge medicinal population of druids who had all sorts of remedies and cures uh, and, and their own spiritual belief. But the Romans provided a lot of the raw material. I mean, whenever you look at what during St. Patrick's time, he escaped from Ireland with some sailors. Now, they were exporting pelts and furs and hides, but they were importing food. They were importing wine and beer and stuff that they couldn't make themselves. So there was obviously a big culinary um, you know, and bringing in salt, which we don't have in Ireland, potatoes, because they, they came back with, with um, 
the English in the in the fifteen hundreds from South America. So we we didn't have potatoes. Potatoes now is the real staple diet of what we do. You rarely have something to eat in Ireland without a potato. But of course, back in Patrick's day, there were no potatoes, so they were they were eating other things. Pretty fascinating, huh? It is. I mean, Ireland's a great society and culture to look at. A, a potato can grow. You can grow large amounts of starch in a potato field than you can in a wheat field. Um, and so people really adopted to that. A small farmer can grow a lot of potatoes. They store fairly well, and you can have them to eat very, very well. The problem is they don't store as long as, as um, wheat does. And the other problem was it, is it was mostly a monocrop. So when something happened, you had many varieties of wheat and barley over in the New World, but you only had very few varieties of potatoes. So when the blight hit, uh, that crop got devastated, and people mm. were used to eating that crop in large, in large amounts. And when that was your principal form of a carbohydrate, uh, you got starvation. Well, I want to go back to something else that you said a little while ago, too. Um, and that is that the tomato, uh, we think of that as being uh, associated with Italy and Italian food. So where is the tomato from? Tomatoes are from the Mexico area. The New World had a hesitancy because some people thought tomatoes were poisonous because they're a member of, of a family, which is the nightshade family, the same family as potatoes and um, other crops like that. But they, they aren't. They grow very well. They're actual plants that grow year-round in that climate they're from. Mm. But we grow them as annuals in most parts around the world. It's a large berry. It's a fruit. It's very flavorful. And it's become, who can imagine uh, spaghetti without tomato sauce? <laughs> I can't. Our pizza's without it, too. Exactly. Right. I love my pizza with tomato sauce on it. But now, Dr. Bill, let's stop here because uh, we need to take a break. So you guys sit tight. We'll be back in a few minutes here on Travel with Anita and Friends. travel we think of eating we think of food and we want to always try the traditional foods those local cuisines that we've heard about and people have told us if you're going there you gotta try it welcome back to travel with anita and friends now today i have doc bill in my personal food expert as well as my personal <laughs> person who keeps me well fed because doc bill is my husband but now today we've been talking about food maps we've been talking about food and religion food and celebrations and just how certain foods from certain areas have become known as the traditional foods in places where they didn't originate i want to move and talk about native american foods and cuisine and european because those were probably and when you talk about what is now consider America, those two combined were probably two of some of the first that were really connected. They're very much connected because of the, the magnitude of the distances these two places were, um, are. You've got North and South America, which are separated by an ocean, and then you've got um, the cultures, which are quite different. And um, if you look at it, I mean, the Native Americans got to where they were by leaving uh, the Middle East walking across Asia and eventually walking across the, the land bridge and coming into the New World, heading from North, from North America all the way down to Central America, all the way down to South America. Uh, it doesn't matter how you get there, it's just, it's, you know, it's the time factor. But as they did this incredible journey, and it's an incredible journey if you look at it, uh, they encountered new crops and some of the crops they brought with them wouldn't work. So they eventually figured out in working with what they had. In the New World, the primary crop is corn by no question. And we're going to talk a little about the Cherokees because the Cherokees, um, their term for the word corn is silu. And that's the Cherokee word for corn. And again, we're in the field of the goddess, the female powers. 
And um, in that realm and in that area there, uh, they found that this corn grew well with other vegetables. It grew well with, with beans. Beans put nitrogen, which is one of the fundamental blocks of building protein, into the soil. And uh, it also grew well with squash. The high shade from the uh, corn plants made it the squash grow um, a lot easier. And again, that package of the beans and the corn gave you all the protein you needed. You also had in the same in the same part of the New World, you had you had Native Americans that were hunter gatherers, didn't really farm. The Cherokees were pretty much hunter, uh, initially hunter gatherers, and they became more farmers. Um, the Europeans interacted with them, and the Europeans brought the horse. And with the horse, a lot of the Indians were able to become more mobilized and became um, less farming dependent and more mobile more mobilized for hunting. A good example is the Plains Indians, the Lakotas, it allowed them to hunt the buffalo in large large numbers. Um, but in the Native American societies, it's corn, the power of the female, and the other thing is the crops they grew. When we think of southern greens, if I ask someone, what is a southern green, they'll say, they'll say collops, turnips, yeah. and mustards. Mm -hmm. uh, those aren't southern greens. Southern greens would be greens like whiskey, ramps, uh, uh, crow's foot. Um, you know, these are wild greens that grow along the, the creek banks in those areas, in Sochan, particularly for, this, for the Cherokee. And um, they had no concept of the collards and all those greens that we talk about the Middle Eastern greens. And they were cooked differently. They would take a variety of these greens, mix them together, and they would use them in the foods that they prepared. Uh, they would use a fat. The fat they primarily used a lot in these societies were, uh, was bear fat. Didn't have the, the pig that we have now. Later on, they ran into the pig from the Europeans, and the pork became one of their primary um, ingredients they used. But in these societies, there was also very little sweets. They didn't have refined sugar. There was no sugar cane. So if you wanted something sweet, you had to eat berries. You had to, um, you know, the old, you, know, you had to eat fruit. Um, and a lot of the fruits they ate weren't the fruits from Europe. They were the fruits that were native there. So they didn't have tooth decay. They didn't have the things associated with. They didn't have diabetes. Um, they were very mobile, moving around people. So they didn't have obesity. It's when they ate the European food that they started getting those problems, and their lifestyle also changed. Um, a lot of Native Americans find that they go back to more of the traditional diets, they have less problems with um, diabetes and heart disease than they do if they um, stay on the current European diet. So the Native diets have certain things. As I said before, you evolve to the food you eat. Mm -hmm. You almost get locked into it. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes other food cultures you can't eat because your body didn't evolve with the genes to handle it. And you have to go back to your own diet um, you know, to have better health. Now, sometimes that works, and sometimes you have the people themselves have intermixed so much. It, um, they have genes from, every, from all, all parts yeah, of the world, so it doesn't make that much of a difference. But if you're dealing with people, and I'm saying I'm going to use the term pure, um, pure uh, full blood or purebred, this is biology. Um, these people really have to stay on the, closer to their native diets to have less health problems, to have, um, because that's the, the food they grew up with and they've eaten for thousands of years is what they can metabolize most efficient. Well, what about dairy uh, products? Are Native Americans that's, most acceptable to intolerance with that? Yeah. The dairy products are mostly European. The Europeans brought with them the horse, the cow, and the goats. Uh, in North America, uh, they didn't have beasts of burdens. The horse was here, but it died out a long, long time before the, um, the human beings got here. So even in um, South America, where they had beasts of burdens, alpacas and things like and llamas, they never milked them. Uh, so they had a diet that didn't have dairy in it. They had a whole dairy-free diet um, and got used to surviving on a dairy-free diet and had foods that were very nutritious in uh, that um, realm. Uh, North Africa 
you have a diet which um people have cows africans are in the north part particularly the um the negroes in the north part that they have that but when you get to um south south really the southern parts of africa where you don't have dairy products you don't see much of that and even in the south um pre the civil war and during the civil war most of your dairies um products were, were 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 brought from the north or from europe there were very few dairy cattle and dairy farms they were usually northerners that set up farms and milk um set up farms where you could get butter and milk that wasn't much in the southern diet until later on and the milk you did have was things rapidly utilized you know you saw a lot of you saw a lot of um buttermilk you saw a lot of a little bit of milk there but a lot of time people used you know pig parts these lard a lot of times and uh, products instead of making pies as opposed to using butter Let's talk a little bit about spices because uh, I've been to the Middle East and I've been to some of the spice markets and they're just, well, first of all, they're beautiful to just look and see all of the colors and all the shades of, of different colors there. But spices were traded quite a bit as well. They became like part of the whole trading process. They were the key thing. Spices is what started a lot of the trade. People went all the way around the world. They went away from Europe all the way around the Cape um, of the Horn of Africa to, to India to get spices. And um, again, spices are, 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 they make food taste better. They also have nutritional values and they also have preservative values. Mm. When you have certain foods, you know, not only do you want to eat the food, other animals want to eat the food. And also uh, the bacteria and bugs want to eat the food. So you have to have some way of preserving food. And one of the ways of preserving food is um, using spices. People didn't have refrigeration. You either dried something out or you mix it with something and put it in an environment which made it hard for the bacteria or the other pathogens around to attack it. But um, the spices also um, look good and they smell good. And sometimes when something works, it's just sort of like a ma magic of nature. When you have something, a food product that preserves or makes life possible, sometimes itself tastes good. I don't know how to describe that, but sometimes the best preserved foods, um, you know, also are some of the foods that taste the best and, and the biology of the spice and that everything works together. Uh, the most common spice in the world is salt. And, you know, um, it's easy to store, it's easy to have. Um, there may be other spices, but they're seasonal and people use what they have around them. Curries are a good example. They're used all around the world, you know, and they mm -hmm. go from India to parts of Africa to the New World and people bring them. But in hot, humid areas, the curries help to cool you down and the curries also help to um, preserve the food. But, you know, and also chilies. Chilies are from the New World. There's no chilies in China. They came from the New World. There's no chilies in India that came from the New World. They had ginger and other crises to get things hot heat. But uh, again, these spices have traveled around the world so much we just think of them as part of those cultures now. And what would be some of the things that came out of, uh, say, out of Asia, out of China, out of Japan? Like Oranges, that. peaches, duck, chicken, uh, Sichuan peppercorns. Uh, China's the law. I mean, uh, Asia's the largest landmass. It's going to have the largest diversity, so it's going to have a lot of crops, even crops um like chestnuts. There's an American chestnut. There's a Chinese chestnut. There's a European chestnut. It's such a large landmass that almost most a lot of the crops in the world come from come from that come from that Asian area. Uh, the most exciting crops we think about these days come from the New World, the area the area of Central America. Uh, everyone loves chocolate. Everyone loves vanilla. Great crops come from that part of the world. Coffee, we love coffee. Where did coffee come from? It doesn't come from South America. Coffee came from Africa, the region of Ethiopia. Mount mm -hmm. okra, it's quintessential African crop, you know, but um, it's found all around the world and all, all sorts of dishes. It, it's a crop that you can dry. It's a crop that you can eat fresh. And even the a combination of okra and tomato soup, 
we have here in um, parts of the United States, but okra in most parts of the world was you know wasn't initially eaten with um tomatoes. Tomatoes from the New World, okra from the old okra from Africa, but the two come together, and people cannot think of eating tomatoes without okra in a lot, a lot of places around the world now. Check out my website, Travel with Anita and Friends, where you can find information about Doc Bill's cookbooks. Yes, he has three of them. One on Cherokee cooking, one on Gullah Geechee cooking, coastal Georgia cooking, and also one on Appalachian cooking. So check it out at TravelWithAnita.com. There you'll also see some photos, and I'll see if I can put a recipe or two from Doc Bill's cookbooks there as well. Thanks for joining me today. Come back in two weeks where I have another great destination here on Travel with Anita and Friends. Bye-bye. Oh.